We've been looking in 1 Peter chapter 2 as Peter instructs the Christians who have in the eyes of the world been displaced but in the sovereign power of God have been placed as we learned in 1 Peter 1 where God intended for them to be that they might be seed scatterers. I've been studying the Apostle Paul's life past few days. One of the things that really grips me in the study of Paul and his mission work is that on a particular occasion, he was going to bed knowing in his mind and heart that he was going to turn east toward Asia. And he was gripped by a vision, a dream, the man from Macedonia. And instead he turned west intending to go all the way to Spain and up into Britannia. He intended to go as far west as, and you can follow the route of his missionary journeys and you can see what a vast area he impacted in just 10 years. His mission work only lasted 10 years. But Paul went west so what happens to these people there over in Bithynia and these other Well, here, God sent them east. These particular believers, they're unnamed. We don't know who they are. Peter is writing to Christians who to us are unknown, unnamed. They are suffering. They're persecuted in a time of Nero's persecution of Christians and Christianity. But in the purpose and mind of God, they had a name and they had a purpose. Everything in their lives was moving them to this moment, to this point. Peter calls them the elect exiles or the elect sojourners up in 1 Peter chapter 1, early part of the chapter. The elect Sojourners, exiles. God put you there. You're of the dispersion. Therefore, you are to scatter seed. You are seed scatterers. So God in his plan and purpose knows what he's doing in our lives. A great portion of the lives of these people had been spent in Rome. That becomes obvious as we go through the rest of 1 Peter displaced from that area, probably maybe had grown up there, had raised their children there and started families there. But now in a, in a difficult situation, being sent to a foreign land to live among people they did not know, a culture that was removed from a culture with which they were familiar but it was by the hand and design of God. We have seen now in this part of our study in 1 Peter that the Holy Spirit through Peter addresses three areas of behavior for them and for us as Christians. And here they are. Well, the first ones we looked at were how they were to be seen 
and how they were to present themselves as sojourners in a land that really wasn't theirs, in a culture that wasn't theirs, among people who they didn't know, but automatically hated them because Nero told Rome to hate them, Christians in general. We studied that. Then you're living in an area that has structure, it has administrative and political structure in the place where God is placing you. So here, here is how you are to live in this world as citizens of this world. Now that we have a citizenship in heaven, but until we're in heaven and until all of this is over, we are here. And so there is a, a Christ honoring behavior as a sojourner, if we're in a place that's not familiar to us, if we're in, and we are, in the world that in general hates Christ, hates the church, hates the word of God, I saw where this was last week. A little boy was sent home here in, in the United States. He was sent home from school because he quoted, as I recall, he quoted the Lord's Prayer. They sent him home. I don't know what else he might could have quoted that would have met the standard of acceptance, but the Lord's Prayer was somehow forbidden, despised, hated, therefore this child was sent home. Now those kinds of events are increasing in our, in our own nation. But aren't we guaranteed freedom of religion? Doesn't matter. Apparently, doesn't matter. Freedom of speech and all these things, doesn't matter. Apparently. Here's the point. The purpose of the attempt comes from Satan, who is the God of this world, the God of this age, who seeks to control every aspect of authority, whether it's, whether it's in academia, whether it's in government, um, even whether it's in church. He's extremely, he's an extremely wily, intelligent and strong and well-organized enemy of God's people. And there's great deception and great delusion. That's why the people of God need to stay in the word of God. So that you can quickly and easily understand that which is deception. That which is evil, that which is wrong, that which is anti-God and anti-Christ. You stay in the word of God. But even though we're in this world, we are still in a world of authority and in a social structure that is ordained by God. We have to keep remembering that regardless of how it may seem to work against us. We're under several mandates in the New Testament of how to live in the society where God has put us. We're not to be unruly. We are never, of course, to forsake the, the faith. That, that, that can't happen really with a true believer. 
And we must stand for the things of Christ. But according to what Peter is teaching these people, the strongest way that you stand for Christ is in the way you behave yourself when the rest of the world comes against you because of your faith. This is the crux of what Peter is addressing here. So how we're to behave when we're in a place that's not familiar to us, how we're to behave in the world when sometimes the administrative authorities seem to be trying to work against us. How do we respond to that? Now, we, we studied that last time. Okay, now, what about in the workplace? What about in an area where we have to uh, maintain relationships and, and do our jobs on a regular and even daily basis? What about that? I suppose that some of you at least could agree to the truth that often the, the workplace works against Christianity. It works against Christians, despises the things of Christ. How do we, how do we live? God has ordained social structure. And we have to remember that. And we have to remember that the most important thing to us is our testimony. And to understand that we must present to the world through our lives the truth that Christianity is based on integrity in relationships. We can't lose sight of that. So we come to this third part of how we behave as Christians in this life. We're in verses 18 through 25, 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's look at it. Servants, this is number one. Be subject with all fear to masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unreasonable, the unfair. Submit yourself to the authority that exists within the social order where God has put you. God didn't make a mistake. You know, there's something I, I often talk about how the social gospel has, has really weakened, in my view, the work of the church. This is going to sound strange, but it's the truth. Being a Christian does not automatically free us from the social order in the case where they lived here. That God has ordained that there are always people who are in charge and people who work for them. That's the way it is. How, how, could, how could a society exist? How could there be production? And, and how could life be improved if it was otherwise? So social order, generally speaking, is, is not chaos. It's not supposed to be. God has ordained it 
so that we can have a peaceable life and to whatever degree have a prosperous life. We have to understand that as Christians, that we don't want to be part of the problem. We want to be part of the social order that God has ordained. The New Testament does not automatically declare that in a physical sense, slaves are freed. I'm not talking about spiritual slavery. We're free in Christ. He has set us free and we are free indeed. But it doesn't release us from obligations within the social order where we have been placed. As a matter of fact, Christianity does not automatically create equal rights. Now there are fruits of a righteous tree where those things will happen in the due course of time if the society is a Christian-based society and people are sensitive to the word of God and to the leadership of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Peter, however, is writing to people who are strangers in a strange land who are joined by their faith to the church and to that which is called Christianity, which has been roundly and soundly condemned by Nero. They were accused, you can read this in church history, you can read it in the church, the Christians in Rome were accused of being the ones who set Rome on fire. And so, I mean, th th there may have been some unruly so-called Christian who threw a, what do you call it, Molotov cocktail or whatever, they, I don't know if they had those back then, but anyway, that may have been true in some cases. But the broader part of the context of history there is that Nero did nothing to stop it. He actually played a violin while it was happening. And Rome was burning and all of the hatred of Rome came against the Christians because Nero had declared they were the ones who caused the problem. So then... In that social structure, they're, they're automatically hated and despised and probably, probably were mistreated more than others simply because they were Christians. But what is the loudest statement that Christians can make in a culture and in a society that despises them? It is this, to behave, to act like a model Christian, act like a model employee, fill your life and order your steps with integrity, knowing that where you are and your circumstances have been ordained by God. Let me tell you this, your job is not the most important thing from heaven's viewpoint. The most important thing from heaven's viewpoint is your Christian testimony. You're not in a job, you're on a mission field. 
We should always view life like this. Everything is a mission field for a Christian. And the loudest testimony we have is how we behave where God has placed us. To do our best. To be part of what is good and what is right without compromising our faith. And without compromising, of course, our obedience to the word of God. So, God's concern for you and for me is how the world looks upon us as Christians. Those of us who are representative of Christ. It's a mission field. And the first thing they hear is what they see. How we actually live in this world. God places us in a particular set of circumstances. And in that set of circumstances, there is an authority who is over us. He's the boss. He's the manager. He's whatever. He may be good and gentle. He may be unreasonable and unfair. But we can't lose sight of the the fact that God, because of our faith, has placed us there. And God is up to something. So God knows what he's doing. Patiently with all faith. In living the way that we should live as Christians. We watch to see what God does. Now the fact that God put them there. And the fact that Peter said they were seed scatterers. Tells us that God had people there whom he would call to himself. And he would use these Christians through their testimony To reach them for Christ by the design and sovereign power of God, and they would come to Christ. You know, what if you gained the whole world and lost your testimony? To rephrase a little bit what is asked in Mark's, uh, Matthew's gospel, what is it? What good is it if you get all the promotions in the world and all the accolades that are possible for you to get in whatever your, your, your field of work may be, and yet you have lost along the way your Christian integrity, your testimony? Is that an attractive thing to people? Of course not. It, it's, it's double poison for us. They're automatically going to hate us or at least have the propensity to hate us because we're Christians. Those who are not Christians don't realize it, but they're in the grip of, they are slaves to sin and in the grip of Satan. That's what we're taught in the New Testament. They don't realize that. We realize it because of how we've learned it through the truth. Of the New Testament. But we have to realize that we may be the only harbinger of light some of these people will ever see. And therefore, we have to be keenly aware that what God is most concerned with is our testimony. He has put us here for a purpose. 
God doesn't make a mistake. God is not haphazardly throwing people around in the world. He knows exactly what he's doing. The God of order and power knows where we are and knows why we are there. Thus, this first mandate, be subject with all fear to masters, those who are servants, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable and unfair. How do you overwhelm an unbelieving world by the testimony of your behavior? People knowing that there's something different about you, those who are in Christ. Here's the second thing. For this is, it actually says, if you look at it up there in verse 9, Tudagar karis. For this is grace. That's really what it says. For this is grace. If for the sake of conscience toward God or of God, the conscience, conscience of God, anyone endures griefs, suffering unjustly. For what kind of credit is it if sinning and being struck you shall endure, but if doing good and you shall endure suffering? This is commendable to God. This is, this is, this is doing something for which God... It's an interesting phrase. It speaks like God is grateful. <laughs> it pleases God. It is within the favor of God for us to be subject with all fear to those who are in authority over us. For this is gracious. This is grace. And God accepts this, and this is a favor that this happens in our lives. This is a good thing. It's a commendable thing before God. We are like this because we understand that God is watching us. Commendable before God. God is watching us. We are ever in the presence of God. God makes no mistakes. He puts us where we are so that we can understand the mission field. Not a job, not a place, a mission field. We're there because God intends for, for people to be positively affected through our lives. Those of us who are in Christ. This is how God works it. And it's grace. This is grace. Now, third thing. For to this you have been called. Now, yes, being a Christian in this world may seem to cost you something. It may bring ridicule, suffering, persecution, especially in the case of these Christians to whom Peter is writing. 
But this is that to which we've been called. This is a calling of God. Therefore, God will have equipped us. Therefore, God will have resourced us. And when we are there in the throes of battle spiritually, we can know that we are there because we have been called by God to be there. For to this you have been called. Romans in the Roman Empire worshipped a plethora of gods and goddesses. They hardly, in the deadness of their sin, could understand the concept of one God. Especially a God who would choose to become a man and suffer. Suffer the penalty that he would otherwise have poured out upon his own. He won't do that. He'll take the penalty upon himself that those who are his own might be redeemed. Only the Holy Spirit could awaken these people to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that which begins to bring the light and open the light of the gospel would be through the lives of those who are Christians with whom these Romans are interacting all the time. I spoke earlier about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul and how he was led to go west instead of east. Which, which led me into a quick study of the development of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in that region, in those regions where the Apostle Paul had gone. Not long ago, we studied First and Second Thessalonians. And Paul commended the Thessalonians for how their faith was being shouted abroad. And he talked about all of these surrounding regions that now had churches and faithful Christians because upon a particular time, Paul had been in Thessalonica and those who were there shared their faith and were separated from humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit, the call of God and others now through their proclamation are drawn to Christ and how the church grew in those regions toward the West. One of the saddest tales, one of the saddest truths of modern history is the demise and decline of Christianity in Europe and even in the United States of America. It only speaks to the truth that we are near the end of days. But the power of the Holy Spirit in those early days, working through the early church and the lives of Christians who lived as Christians, who proclaimed Christ as Christians, understanding that where they were was a mission field. They wouldn't be there except that God had put them there and therefore there was something 
positive that God would use them for in that mission field to make some kind of a difference for the cause sake and in the name of Jesus Christ. It, some, it very often requires suffering. Here's a good question. I'm not going to ask you, of course, to raise a hand or anything else. Just answer it in your heart. Have you ever suffered for the cause of Christ? Have you ever been in a situation trying your best to be true to Christ and it cost you something? You suffered. You were persecuted. Sometimes even in church. Uh, well, it's because you were called to that. This is part of being a Christian in this life. But like I said earlier, God's great concern is not for your job or, or not for your so-called equal rights in this world. God is concerned about your testimony in this world for Christ. This, is, this should be the primary thing for all Christians. This is the first thing for us. To live for Christ. To proclaim Christ. There are always some who will be saved. Until the church is caught away. And we're not here anymore. Always some until the last one. Jesus said until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Why are we called to this? Fourth, fourth thing, because Christ is our example. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow after his steps, walk in his steps. That word, example, that's a, that's a, a, a compound word that speaks of that. It's up there on the second line. Hippogramon. Hippogramon. It means a copy of. Christ leaves, he, he is our example. He left us an example. And we're to look, we're to look at that copy and carefully be as that copy that example was to us so what did he do well number one he suffered for us that we should follow after his steps who committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth he was abused but did not abuse in return he is our example he suffered but he did not threaten if any listen to me if anybody could claim Human rights, it was Christ. The perfect, sinless Son of God. Actually, the Creator who created everything, who became a man. He never claimed on any of that. He never fell back on any of that. He was abused, but He did not abuse in return. He suffered, but He did not threaten. He gave Himself over to Him who is judging justly or righteously. 
He gave himself to the will of the Father, knowing that the Father in his will would tend to all things. Finally. This is you and me. We cannot conquer the world, even spiritually. We have this place where God has placed us. We have this call in our life, whatever it may be for you. And we have this mission field where he has put us. We have this work to do and we have this life in which to do it. And that's it. But we know that we fall back on the sovereign purpose of the Father who is in heaven. He is working all things. And finally... Works it for our good. So, this is what Christ did. Gave himself over to him who is judging justly. And we do the same thing. All unrighteousness. That comes before the great white throne. As unrighteousness. Will be judged. A great, horrible, final Judgment. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having been dead to sins, we might live to righteousness. By whose wounds you have been healed, quoting the prophet. It is not our life. To live for sin. If in this world, as a sojourner, as a citizen, as a slave, a servant, we arrogate things to ourselves, then we are committing ourselves to sin. That's not righteousness because it's against the biblical teaching. Now, there are saints of God in the Old Testament and New Testament who tried that and didn't work. It miserably failed. Um, Moses, for example, took things into his own hand. He went beyond the parameters of where God had placed him and placed upon him. And he didn't get to see the promised land. He died Before the people went over into Canaan. Abraham. Before Moses. Abraham. Lied. And. Then fell into the way of the world. And into the. um, Into the realm of the culture of the Canaanites when he accepted Sari's invitation to take Hagar, the handmaid, as as his concubine. Because at that late stage, they were barren, didn't have a child. God promised them a child. And it hadn't happened, so Sarah just thought, well, I'm gonna tell Abraham what to do. 
And I'm going to give him because by law in the land of Canaan, that child will be my child. And thus we will have produced the child of promise. Ishmael was born. A wild donkey, he was called. The world for decades has teetered on the brink of destruction. Because of the malbehavior of the descendants, generally speaking, of the descendants of Ishmael. You just don't, you just trust God in the simplest and easiest things and especially in the most difficult things. My daddy gave me a piece of advice a long time ago. If you don't know what to do, you better not do anything. You'll just mess it up. Wait upon the Lord. Be still and know that he is God. This is what Peter is saying to the Christians. Now they're outnumbered. They're just a few of them. There's a pocket of them there scattered across the east, the eastern part of in Asia Minor. And they had everything working against them in the world. But they had the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that was working for them. You can study the Christian church, Eastern church, the Eastern Christian church. It all started here with this group of people, you see. There, there, there's a... There's a, there's a, there are, there's a multitude of people who belong to the eastern part of the church. And the fact that, the fact that there is a church and that there are people in those churches tells me that of course, God knew exactly what he was doing until finally all of his own are gathered to himself and it's all brought to a consummation and we stand before him. So, be submissive to the one who's, who is the authority over you And let your gentleness and integrity in Christ be a big part of your testimony in your mission field. You bow your heads and close your eyes. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. If you, according to the scriptures, if you will admit that you're a sinner and believe in Jesus, call on him confessing your sin, he is bound by his word to save you. 
If you're here today without Christ, we're going to make our invitation an extended twofold type of invitation. If you would like to come forward today and express your faith, you're going to be invited to come. You come to Christ today. And if you'd like to do that in here, you just do it right here. As well, as you leave, we have deacons and their wives. If you want to speak to them about salvation or about church membership, they are there for you as you exit this room. So that's our invitation. We're going to have just a verse of a song. If you would come today in this service, you're invited to come to publicly receive Christ. Or as you exit, to speak to our deacons or their wives about salvation and church membership. But right now, prayerfully, would you stand all over this room while he sings this verse of our invitation. You come.